Chapter Twenty Three, Part Three of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate McKenzie. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Three: The Hundred Years' War, Charles the Sixth and the Dukes of Burgundy, Part Three it was not a mere fit of delirious fever it was the beginning of a radical mental derangement sometimes in abeyance or at least for some time alleviated but bursting out again without appreciable reason and aggravated at every fresh explosion charles the sixth had always had a taste for masquerading when in thirteen eighty nine the young queen isabel of bavaria came to paris to be married the king on the morning of her entry said to his chamberlain sire de savoisy prithee take a good horse and I will mount behind thee, and we will dress so as not to be known, and go to see my wife come in. Savoisy did not like it, but the king insisted, and so they went in this guise through the crowd, and got many a blow from the officers' staves when they attempted to approach too near the procession. In 1393, a year after his first outbreak of madness, the king, during an entertainment at court, conceived the idea of disguising as savages himself and five of his courtiers. They had been sewn up in a linen skin which defined their whole bodies, and this skin had been covered with the resinous pitch so as to hold sticking upon it a covering of tow which made them appear hairy from head to foot thus disguised these savages went dancing into the ballroom one of those present took up a lighted torch and went up to them and in a moment several of them were in flames it was impossible to get off the fantastic dresses clinging to their bodies save the king shouted one of the poor maskers but it was not known which was the king the duchess de berry his aunt recognized him caught hold of him and wrapped him in her robe saying do not move you see your companions are burning and thus he was saved amidst the terror of all present when he was conscious of his mad state he was horrified he asked pardon for the injury he had done confessed and received the communion later when he perceived his malady returning he would allude to it with tears in his eyes ask to have his hunting knife taken away and say to those about him if any of you by i know not what witchcraft be guilty of my sufferings i adjure him in the name of jesus christ to torment me no more and to put an end to me forthwith without making me linger so he conceived a horror of queen isabel and without recognizing her would say when he saw her what woman is this what does she want will she never seize her importunities save me from her persecution at first great care was taken of him they sent for a skilful doctor from laon named william de Hazely who put him on a regimen from which for some time good effects were experienced but the doctor was uncomfortable at court he preferred going back to his little place at laon where he soon afterwards died and eleven years later in fourteen o five nobody took any more trouble about the king he was fed like a dog and allowed to fall ravenously upon his food for five whole months he had not a change of clothes at last some shame was felt for this neglect an attempt made to repair it it took a dozen men to overcome the madman's resistance he was washed shaved and dressed in fresh clothes he became more composed and began once more to recognize certain persons amongst others the former provost of paris juvenal des Orsins, whose visit appeared to give him pleasure and to whom he said without well knowing why juvenal let us not waste our time on his good days he was sometimes brought in to sit at certain councils at which there was a discussion about the diminution of taxes and relief of the people and he showed symptoms at intervals of taking an interest in them a fair young burgundian odette de chandivert 
was the only one amongst his many favourites who was at all successful in soothing him during his violent fits it was duke john the fearless who had placed her near the king that she might promote his own influence and she took advantage of it to further her own fortunes which however did not hinder her from afterwards passing into the service of charles the seventh against the house of burgundy for thirty years from thirteen ninety two to fourteen twenty two the crown remained on the head of this poor madman whilst france was a victim to the bloody quarrels of the royal house to national dismemberment to licentiousness in morals to civil anarchy and to foreign conquest when for the first time in the forest of lemain the dukes of berry and burgundy saw their nephew in this condition their first feeling was one of sorrow and disquietude the duke of burgundy especially who was accessible to generous and sympathetic emotions cried out with tears as he embraced the king my lord and nephew comfort me with just one word but the desires and the hopes of selfish ambition reappeared before long more prominently than these honest effusions of feeling all said the duke of berry de clisson bamvier novion and vilaine have been haughty and harsh towards me the time has come when i shall pay them out in the same coin from the same mint the guardianship of the king was withdrawn from his counsellors and transferred to four chamberlains chosen by his uncles the two dukes however did not immediately lay hands on the government of the kingdom the constable de clisson and the late councillors of charles v remained in charge of it for some time longer they had given enduring proofs of capacity and fidelity to the king's service and the two dukes did not at first openly attack them but laboured strenuously nevertheless to destroy them the duke of burgundy one day said to sire de novion i have been overtaken by a very pressing business for which i require forthwith thirty thousand crowns let me have them out of my lord's treasury i will restore them at another time novion answered respectfully that the council must be spoken to about it i wish none to know of it said the duke novion persisted you will not do me this favour rejoined the duke you shall rue it before long it was against the constable that the wrath of the princes was chiefly directed he was the most powerful and the richest one day he went with a single squire behind him to the duke of burgundy's house and my lord said he many knights and squires are persecuting me to get the money which is owing to them i know not where to find it the chancellor and the treasurer refer me to you since it is you and the duke of berry who govern may it please you to give me an answer clisson said the duke you have no occasion to trouble yourself about the state of the kingdom it will manage very well without your services whence pray have you been able to amass so much money my lord my brother of berry and myself have not so much between us three away from my presence and let me see you no more if i had not a respect for myself i would have your other eye put out clisson went out mounted his horse returned to his house set his affairs in order and departed with two attendants to his strong castle at montlhery the two dukes were very sorry that they had not put him under arrest on the spot the rupture came to a climax of the king's four other counsellors one escaped in time two were seized and thrown into prison the fourth Pierrot de la riviere was at his castle at ono near chartres honoured and beloved by all his neighbours everybody urged him to save himself if i were to fly or hide myself said he i should acknowledge myself guilty of crimes from which i feel myself free here as elsewhere i am at the will of god he gave me all i have and he can take it away whensoever he pleases i served king charles a blessed memory and also the king his son and they recompense me handsomely for my services i will abide the judgment of the parliament of paris touching what i have done according to my king's commands as to the affairs of the realm he was told that the people sent to look for him were hard by and was asked shall we open to them why not was his reply he himself went to meet them and received them with a courtesy which they returned 
He was then removed to Paris, where he was shut up with his colleagues in the Louvre. Their trial before Parliament was prosecuted eagerly, especially in the case of the absent de Clisson, whom a royal decree banished from the kingdom, as a false and wicked traitor to the crown, and condemned him to pay a hundred thousand marks of silver, and to forfeit for ever the office of constable. It is impossible in the present day to estimate how much legal justice there was in this decree, but, in any case, it was certainly extreme severity to so noble and valiant a warrior who had done so much for the safety and honour of France. The Dukes of Burgundy and Berry, and many barons of the realm signed the decree, but the king's brother, the Duke of Orléans, refused to have any part in it. Against the other councillors of the king, the prosecution was continued, with fits and starts of determination, but in general, with slowness and uncertainty. Under the influence of the Dukes of Burgundy and Berry, the Parliament showed an inclination towards severity, but Bureau de la Riviere had warm friends, and, amongst others, the young and beautiful Duchess of Berry, to whose marriage he had greatly contributed, and Jean Juvenal des Orsins, provost of the tradesmen of Paris, one of the men towards whom the king and the populace felt the highest esteem and confidence. The king, favourably inclined towards the accused by his own bias, and the influence of the Duke of Orléans, presented a demand to Parliament to have the papers of the procedure brought to him. Parliament hesitated and postponed a reply. The procedure followed its course, and at the end of some months further the king ordered it to be stopped, and Sire de la Riviere and Nevion to be set at liberty, and to have their real property restored to them, at the same time that they lost their personal property and were commanded to remain for ever at fifteen leagues distance, at least from the court. This was moral equity, if not legal justice. The accused had been able and faithful servants of their king and country. Their imprisonment had lasted more than a year. The Dukes of Burgundy and Berry remained in possession of power. They exercised it for ten years, from 1392 to 1402, without any great dispute between themselves, the Duke of Burgundy's influence being predominant, or with the king who, save certain lucid intervals, took merely a nominal part in the government. During this period, no event of importance disturbed France internally. In 1393, the King of England, Richard II, son of the Black Prince, sought in marriage the daughter of Charles VI, Isabel of France, only eight years old. In both courts and in both countries, there was a desire for peace. An embassy came in state to demand the hand of the princess. The ambassadors were presented, and the Earl of Northampton, Marshal of England, putting one knee to the ground before her, said, Madame, please God you shall be our sovereign lady and queen of England. The young girl, well tutored, answered, If it please God and my lord and father that I should be queen of England, I would be willingly, for I have certainly been told that I should then be a great lady. The contract was signed on the ninth of March, 1396, with a promise that, when the princess had accomplished her twelfth year, she should be free to assent or to refuse the union. In ten days after the marriage, the king's uncles and the English ambassadors mutually signed a truce which promised, but quite in vain, to last for eight and twenty years. About the same time, Sigismund, king of Hungary, threatened with an invasion of his kingdom by the great Turkish sultan Bajazet I, nicknamed Lightning, Elderfer, because of his rapid conquests, invoked the aid of the Christian kings of the West, and especially of the king of France. Thereupon there was a fresh outbreak of those crusades so often renewed since the end of the 13th century. All the knighthood of France arose for the defence of a Christian king. John, Count of Nevers, eldest son of the Duke of Burgundy, scarcely eighteen years of age, said to his comrades, If it please my two lords, my lord the king and my lord and father, I would willingly head this army in this venture, for I have a desire to make myself known. The Duke of Burgundy consented, and in person conducted his son to Saint-Denis, but without intending to make him a knight as yet. He shall receive the accolade, said he, as a knight of Jesus Christ, at the first battle against the infidels. 
In April 1396, an army of new crusaders left France and traversed Germany uproariously, everywhere displaying its valiant ardour, presumptuous recklessness, and chivalrous irregularity. Some months elapsed without any news, but, at the beginning of December, there were seen arriving in France some poor creatures, half-naked, dying of hunger, cold, and weariness, and giving deplorable accounts of the destruction of the French army. The people would not believe them. They ought to be thrown into the water, they said, these scoundrels who propagate such lies. But, on the 23rd of December, there arrived at Paris James de Hely, a knight of Artois, who, booted and spurred, strode into the hostel of St. Paul, threw himself on his knees before the king in the midst of the princes, and reported that he had come straight from Turkey, that, on the 28th of the preceding September, the Christian army had been destroyed at the Battle of Nicopolis, that most of the lords had either been slain in battle or afterwards massacred by the sultan's order, and that the Count of Nevers had sent him to the king and his father, the duke, to get negotiations entered into for his release. There was no exaggeration about the knight's story. The battle had been terrible, a slaughter awful. For the latter, the French, who were for a moment victorious, had set a cruel example with their prisoners, and Bajazet had surpassed them in cruel ferocity. After the first explosion of the fathers and the people's grief, the ransom of the prisoners became the topic. It was a large sum, and rather difficult to raise, and, whilst it was being sought for, James Daly returned to report as much to Bajazet, and to place himself once more in his power. "'Thou art welcome,' said the sultan. "'Thou hast loyally kept thy word. I give thee thy liberty. Thou canst go whither thou willest.' Terms of ransom were concluded, and the sum total was paid through the hands of Bartholomew Pellegrini, a Genoese trader. Before the Count of Nevers and his comrades set out, Bajasset sent for them. John, said he to the Count through an interpreter, I know that thou art a great lord in thy country, and the son of a great lord. Thou art young. It may be that thou art abashed and grieved at what hath befallen thee in thy first essay of knighthood, and that, to retrieve thine honour, thou wilt collect a powerful army against me. I might, ere I release thee, bind thee by oath not to take arms against me, neither thyself nor thy people. But, no, I will not exact this oath, either from them or from thee. When thou hast returned yonder, take up arms if it please thee, and come and attack me. Thou wilt find me ever ready to receive thee in the open field, thee and thy men-at-arms. And what I say to thee, I say for the sake of all the Christians thou mayst purpose to bring, I fear them not. I was born to fight them and to conquer the world. Everywhere and at all times human pride, with its blind arrogance, is the same. Bajasset saw no glimpse of that future when his empire would be decaying, and held together only by the interest his protection of Christian powers. After paying dearly for their errors and their disasters, Count Jean of Nevers and his comrades in captivity re-entered France in February 1398, and the expedition to Hungary was but one of the last vain ventures of chivalry in the great struggle that commenced in the 7th century between Islamry and Christendom. End of chapter 23, part 3. Recording by Kate McKenzie.